This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone, and welcome through Treks Through Time. I am your host and FreightWaves Deputy Editor, Brielle Jekyll, and I'm here to tell you about some of the most interesting stories throughout history in transportation and freight. Today, we're covering a sad story about the crash of a Navy airship uh, called the USS Akron, um, where numerous men lost their lives, and it was the first of two major airship crashes in New Jersey during a time when some believed airships were really going to be the future of travel. And both of these incidents actually are a little close to home for me personally by sheer coincidence. And so today I am joined by Dr. Caroline Johnson, who works with the Naval History and Heritage Command, and she does a great job of telling us the story. So let's just get into that now. Hi, everyone. I am here with Caroline Johnson, who is a historian at the Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, D.C., and we are talking about the USS Akron today, which is interesting because I find it interesting because it's one of two major blimp crashes in not only in the U.S., but specific to New Jersey, where I live um, I live on the Jersey Shore, which is right around both of the Hindenburg crash and the USS Akron. Um, and so we want to talk to Caroline. We want to hear what you have to say, um, like what you can tell us about the USS Akron first, like in general, what it was for. Um, I know that you uh, have a lot of experience with it. You've done a lot of work with the USS Akron or, you know, in terms of history. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that project? Absolutely. Um, so I'm from Ohio, actually. So this is a little close to my heart. Um, so obviously built at, we pronounce it Akron, Akron, it's apple, it's oranges, tomato, tomato. So I knew I'm like Akron. Akron. I knew the <laughs> so town is Akron. I just wasn't, I guess. <laughs> right. So this was actually named um, by SACNAV Charles Francis Adams after the town in which it was created. So Akron, Ohio, which is near the Goodyear plant. Um, so it's a helium-filled rigid airship of the U.S. Navy, and it, to this day, holds the record for being the largest uh, helium-filled airship. So you might hear it referred to as ZS, uh, excuse me, ZRS-4, which is just its serial number or identifier number, um, but ultimately we know it as the USS Akron. And some important dates, it was really kind of conceived um, in October of 1929. This was when manufacturing began. Um, it was launched, which just means it was floating free in the massive hangar that was created for it um, in August of 31. And then it was officially commissioned on Navy Day, so October 27 in 1931. So it's about two-year production timeline for it to actually be built. Because this thing is massive. Um, it is 785 feet. 
So it's just shy by about 19 feet of uh, the Hindenburg, which most people, and I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, know as one of the largest airships. Hindenburg was 804. So it's just shy of the size of the Hindenburg. And ultimately, uh, Rear Admiral William Moffat, who was the first chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics for the Navy, is the one who gains the golden rivet um, into the airship in November of 31, setting it ready for sale. So how long was it in commission for? Um, and then, yeah, tell us about the crash. Sure. So it is officially commissioned in October of 31 and ultimately meets its end in April of 1933. So it's not even two years that this is in commission. Wow. Right, right. Which is a really short time frame when you think of the lives that, you know, fixed wing aircrafts have today. Um, about a year and a half. But um, the crash. So there's actually a few incidents leading up to this major incident that some people, some historians view as a bit of a foreboding uh, or a forewarning. So first, in February of 1932, pardon me if I'm recalling dates off the top of my head, <laughs> um, she's caught by the wind and ultimately strikes the tail fin. So this injures kind of lower fin area of the acron. And this is a problem because this was at uh, NAS Lakehurst, so Naval Air Station Lakehurst in Jersey. And they had brought a bunch of kind of congressional um, politicians and whatnot to view this incredible airship. And what happens is it strikes its lower thin area, which does not look good as a PR stunt uh, for the politicians who are ultimately funding these projects, right? So that's strike number one. <laughs> um, strike number two is a little bit more tragic and sad. And this occurs... We have to remember, this airship is actually traveling thousands of miles throughout its commissioning time. And it takes off from NAS Lakehurst in Jersey on May 8th, I believe. And it travels en route all the way to California. So when we're thinking of a helium-filled airship, that's a long way for it to travel. It actually goes a southern route, kind of down through modern-day Louisiana, Texas, through Arizona, out to San Diego. And it's going to moor at Camp Kearney. Unfortunately, it's used to NAS Lakehurst, where they have trained ground handlers and specialized mooring equipment for this massive airship. The landing proved to be a bit sad and difficult as a result of not having this equipment. So the airship, by the time it gets to California, is uncontrollably light. We think of a helium balloon, right, and how it rises um, immediately. But you add warmer air out in California, and you add the fact that it's burned about 40,000 tons of fuel in route, and now it's extremely light. So it's hard to get it to its mooring equipment to the ground. There is mooring crew trying to hold the ropes down to keep it down to prevent it from doing kind of a nosedive stand on itself on this mooring equipment. Ultimately, the choice is to release these ropes because the airship, it's impossible to keep it down. You have four men uh, that hold on to these ropes. Right. <laughs> One gets about 15 feet in the air, makes the snap decision of not a good move, releases, and only suffers an arm elbow uh, as a result. Three, however, are still holding on to their ropes as they're brought into the air. Um, two, unfortunately, do lose their grips, and it is caught on camera to this day of them falling to their deaths at that time. 
uh, so the loss of the lives of two sailor. I actually do know their names here. Um, we have aviation carpenters, mate, third class, Robert H. Edsall and apprentice seaman, Nigel M. Henton. So I like to just mark their names um, as a tribute to those sailors. The third, though, who was named apprentice seaman C.M. Bud Cowart, clung onto this rope for an hour or an hour until he was hoisted inside the airship, ultimately. Oh, my God. Well, this is a kind of an incident that not many, if any, people know about predating the crash of the action. Yeah. That was kind of an incident that triggered this could be really dangerous, um, even just in mourning the aircraft or something you thought was a standard procedure. There is one more incident um, where the tail fin strikes again. Oh, no. No issue. <laughs> so we have three incidents mm-hmm. leading up to the crash. Now, I like a good story. Are you a storyteller by nature? Absolutely. That's why I do this. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Me too. So in terms of the crash, I kind of like to tell it in story format to, to live out what these sailors were going through in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, so... If you can picture native New Jerseyan, um, it's an April evening, so April 3rd, and we are taking off from NAS Lakehurst. So this is kind of where its main station is in New Jersey. It's its 73rd flight, so it's been on many flights by this time, and it's accumulated about 1,500, 1,500 hours of flight time. So if the airship was a uh, person applying for the airlines today, they would be highly qualified to do that. 1,500 hours is kind of standard you need to apply for an airline. So it's well suited to flight. It's done the job several times. And by all intents and purposes, this is a standard operating flight. Um, The goal of this particular flight, though, was to operate along the coast of New England and primarily to assist in the calibration of radio direction finder stations. So Kind of a standard operation procedure, maybe not as high altitude as it would normally be for scouting incidents, but a little lower to the ground to assist with this calibration. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Of the 76 souls on board, there are a few notable figures, uh, particularly for the Navy. So the first one of importance is Rear Admiral William A. Moffat, who, as I mentioned a little earlier, um, it's the first chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics for the Navy and a massive proponent of lighter than air aircraft, airships in general. So he's excited to kind of show this off. Um, his aide is also there, Commander Henry Barton Cecil, um, as well as the commanding officer of Naval Air Station Lakehurst, uh, whose name is Fred T. Berry. 
So they have some prominent people on board the ship at the time, and they're taken off to calibrate some radio stations. Soon after departure, though, they encounter a fog. And this fog is from about 300 to 1,500 feet. There's open smooth air after 1,500 feet, and there's another blanket of clouds that's developing around five to 6,000 feet. So the Akron chooses to hover right around 1,600, so just above that layer of fog, but close enough to the ground that it can actually peek through um, when there are clearings to be able to assist with this radio calibration. So um, Commander McCord, who had taken over from Alger Dressel of commanding the airship, the USS Akron, sets the course westward. So you're taking out of New Jersey and then geographic orienting ourselves. They're heading west toward Philadelphia. And this is mainly just to get better visibility, to try to get away from the fog that they think is ultimately being caused by the ocean, um, warmer drafts, you name it. So they set the course westward, and their ultimate goal is to follow the Delaware River down toward the Cape. The weather starts to deteriorate um, pretty rapidly, and they see lightning appearing south. If you're familiar with the Delaware River, it empties out into the Delaware Bay, and they see it around Wilmington area. Um, lightning is getting worse. So the captain chooses to speed up engines and ultimately escape eastward. So we've tried going west. Now we're going to try going back east okay. um, to escape these weather threats. Little pause for you know our anachronistic timing. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to the crew at the time, they're dealing with one of the worst storm cells in the last decade. Um, so they're trying to outrun it, but the conditions are swelling. The storm cells swelling all around them. There's not really an opportunity uh, to get away from it, at least from their vantage point. By the time it passes Barnegat Light, so are you familiar with Long Beach Island in New Jersey? I'm gonna blow <laughs> your mind. That is where I live. Oh my gosh, I used to vacation there as a kid um, every summer. Okay, we'll have to talk after this. People are familiar with Long Beach Island. I say that and they think Long Beach, not the same. Uh, um, I, story of my life. But yeah, this is Barnegat Light. You have the Barnegat So if you're watching this um, in real time, you can see that's actually Barnegat Light. And this is what the crew passes um, around 10 p.m. And at this point, the weather has just gotten so much worse. And two hours after that, so now we're talking just after midnight, um, about 12.15, the fog has fully enveloped them. It's heavy rain and lightning is all around them. In this incredibly unstable atmospheric environment, the USS Akron ultimately begins a notice dive descent. And it's still falling at 1,100 feet. Just just from wind and rain? They think ultimately, and we can kind of talk about the, the findings after, but ultimately they think it's a downdraft. Um, okay. There also is some speculation that there was inaccurate altimeter rating. So this is what tells um, the commander the altitude at the time due to not really realizing the decrease in barometric pressure from the storm. So they're not fully sure what the full reasoning was, but ultimately downdraft is listed, at least in the naval proceedings, naval court as the cause. Um, okay. There is a precaution taken here. It's not unknown to lose altitude in an you know, unstable atmospheric environment. So uh, for those familiar uh, with 
you know, obviously freight, we're on freight waves. <laughs> uh, there's something called ballast that is used. And in this case, it's water. And it's simply a weight that's carried aboard for the Akrang, a lighter-than-air aircraft that's used to offset that buoyancy. Um, so helium will cause the ship to rise, the ballast, the water will keep that kind of in an even altitude. At this point, they want to gain altitude. So Lieutenant Commander Wiley drops the water first from the midship containers and then the bow emergency blast because they're, they're dropping altitude fast, they're too close to the ground, they've got to gain altitude. And ultimately dumps about 1,600 pounds of water into NASA sprays. Wow. <laughs> this works. So it does what it's supposed to do. And keep in mind, while they're performing this action, they are still losing altitude. So the ship is descending, but it stabilizes at around 700 feet. They'll have from the sea level. So we're close, but we have some altitude. And ultimately it regains about 900 feet of altitude to level out at 1,600 feet. So just above that initial fog layer again, but they're surrounded at this point. Well, I find this interesting because it's the exact opposite problem that they had in San Diego where they couldn't keep it down. Exactly. And this is this is a, a history of airships. And at this point, it was seen in many ways to have kind of um, addressed this issue. Part of having a helium-filled airship is once you get rid of the ballast, is there any way to kind of help regain altitude once you've gotten rid of the water? They did include condensers on the Akron, which was a way to take kind of water vapor from the outside and regenerate that water ballast. However, we're talking a matter of minutes, right? So there's right. no way that they can regenerate enough to help dump it again and regain altitude. Um, so this is incredibly unfortunate because ultimately it's not enough. Um, the Akron does begin a second violent descent. Uh, this time it's still down and it's at the rate of about 14 feet a second. So we do the math, which I got you. <laughs> 1,600 feet and we're dropping at the rate, you know, 14 feet a second. So we're talking about 114 seconds. So under two minutes until it hits sea level. Which you can imagine as a you know you're descending got less than two minutes they don't know it at the time but i mean i'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of what that would feel like mm -hmm. um ending that rapidly and to have already dumped your ballast and so you don't really have many options at this point so what happens ultimately is that the lower or the aft fin hits the water first and as an aviation geek i find this really interesting because most people picture an airship crash as just plopping in the water and that's it yeah and being ground under um, what we forget in terms of ships, at least these are massive and they can often take a long time to sink under. Um, in the case of the Akron, this tail hits first and it starts filling with water. Um, but we do have eight Slabach engines, um, on the Akron generating thrust. So usually when you're in straight and level flight, that's going to pull you forward. If your tail is stuck in the water, however, it's going to actually send you up. Uh, that thrust is going to pull you up, which puts the airship into a nose-high attitude, which is a kiss of death um, in aviation as a pilot puts you into a stall. And the only correction for a stall is nose-down power, but you're already tail in the water. You have no altitude to correct it. Um, so this kind of is, is what seals the Akron's fate. Tail hits, starts going with water, 
stall down in, disintegrating, starts getting pulled under in really stormy seas, mind you, in the dark Atlantic Ocean after midnight. And with at this point, it's been what, three minutes? Right. Correct. I mean, this all happens in a matter of minutes. And something that's interesting is we do have an account from uh, the German ship Phoebus at around 1224. This is kind of how we can time things um, because we'll get to in a second. There's only three survivors that are all kind of in the control room at the time. um, And and they do make it out. They're kind of thrust out into the water. Um, But the German ship Phoebus sees lights descending rapidly at around 1224 a.m., uh, so just after midnight. And ultimately, they turn around to come check out what's happening. They thought it was an airplane crash, like a fixed-wing oh, aircraft. They didn't know this was one of the largest airships in history that had just hit the water. They actually pull um, Lieutenant Commander Wiley out of the water, as well as um, Lee second mate Richard Deal. And um, aviation metalsmith Moody Irwin. I had to remember. Sorry, I can't believe you <laughs> can remember all these names so well. Time is hard. Sometimes I need post its, but today. <laughs> <laughs> so they pull three out of the water, and they actually don't even know it's it is the Akron crash until Lieutenant Commander Wiley comes to he kind of uh, fainted, passed out, and he informs them that that was the entire crew of the Akron that had just landed in the water. So the Phoebus calms the ocean um, for about five hours. So from just after midnight until 5, 5.30 a.m. And they're actually joined by Navy Blimp uh, J3 that assists in these recovery efforts. But keep in mind, we're still in storm conditions. We're still in the dark. It's between midnight, 5 a.m. So ultimately, the Navy Blimp actually loses two lives as well, trying to assist in these recovery oh, efforts. Right. The first American vessel, uh, which was the USS Tucker, doesn't actually make it on the scene until about 6 a.m. So now we're on April 4th, uh, 6 a.m. And even though we had several ships uh, assisting in these recovery efforts, including the Navy J3 blimp, ultimately it was a total of 73 of the 76 lives lost. When you add the two from the Navy blimp, that is a total of 75 fatalities with that's so sad. It's tragic. It's absolutely a tragic loss of life. And during the interview after, um, Lieutenant Commander Wiley, it's online, so please go Google uh, this. It gave me chills when I first watched it. I did write down this quote here. That he actually says, we were in the water about 45 minutes, um, and now we are ready for duty in airships or wherever we may be assigned. That's his first words, is that we're ready for duty. Wow. Even after experiencing this tragedy. I can't imagine what it would be like to, one, just go through all of that in general. And I know now the water is still in the 50s around here and I'm where it crashed. I, you know, I can't even get waist high in the water right now. I can't imagine being in that, if it's surviving that in, um, in April, like, right. And you, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's ultimately drowning. Um, so not having anything to hold on to in stormy seas and also hypothermia that ultimately yeah. causes those 73 fatalities of the men in the water. Um, so th- there is precautions taken 
as a result of this. I don't know if you want to talk about kind of like what comes of this or um, what happens and how it runs down. Yeah. So actually, my next question was going to be, what is the aftermath? What kind of came about, um, you know, during the investigation? Did they, you know, I know the Hindenburg crash like five years afterwards. So obviously, they didn't stop using air uh, ships. But yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what happens afterwards? Absolutely. Um, So there's kind of a few gut reactions um, that the public, the Navy, politicians all have surrounding this incident. And the first is dealing with the tragedy itself and making sure right. this doesn't happen again. Um, this is kind of a pride point um, for not only advocates of lighter-than-air airships for the Navy in general, but just for the United States kind of operations of airships, mainly because this was one of America's largest and strongest aerial creations at this point carry over 207 passengers on 10-hour journeys. Um, it really was touted as kind of the potential future of aviation, not only for civilian use, but military use as well. Right. And ultimately, um, this is the largest loss of life in any airship crash, which we can talk about Hindenburg and why those are seen differently in the second. Um, but in debriefing the incident, two major issues really come into play. One was there were no life jackets on board. So we, I know we mentioned drowning and hypothermia as the two main causes. A big reason for that is there were no life jackets. Um, so as a result of this incident, Akron had a sister ship called the USS Macon, equivalent in size, and they outfit the Macon with life jackets. Oh, good. Incredibly useful because just um, a few years later in 1935, the Macon encounters a similar fate, a crash, but this time off the coast of California. Um, but the difference here is we do have different conditions, warmer waters, et cetera, but 70 of the 72 crew survive. Um, so big difference between 73 out of 75 perishing and 70 out of 72 living. Wow. That is life best. Um, also access to rafts as well. So there weren't enough rafts on board the Akron um, or Akron. I'm saying it now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, it's all good. I'm, I've heard it a million ways. So um, there weren't enough rafts on board and they didn't have time to deploy them anyways in those conditions. But there were rafts added onto the Macon. Um, so those two factors, life jackets and rafts, really contributed to saving lives in future incidents. No, it's That's huge. Great. Um, yeah, right. It makes it much more uh, less of a sad story. But there are, as you mentioned, kind of political and legal ramifications as well. So the Navy Court of Inquiry ultimately finds there could have been a few issues here. First, they did decide that the commanding officer could have committed an error in judgment um, in not setting appropriate forces given the weather conditions. Also, there's mention of potential inaccurate altimeter ratings, which might not have been the commander's fault, but something to consider. They do ultimately name a downdraft as the main cause for the sharp descent of the Akron twice. Unstable atmosphere, no real ability to change that. They were unable, though, to kind of place this responsibility of a failure to kind of check the descent, just given the amount of time in which the fall took place. Uh, Essentially, commander didn't have enough time 
uh, did the best that they could with the actions. They had dumped the ballast the first descent. So those appropriate actions were taken. Ultimately, though, the CNO or Chief of Naval Operations decides that some of this evidence is inconsistent with each other. We just can't really decide what happened. And so ultimately, he judges in the favor of the commanding officer and dubs it a tragedy caused by a downdraft weather unable to fix conditions. This, though, really does impact kind of how the Navy and, and technology in general moves forward. Um, so the immediate reaction actually is somewhat divided, but it did still push for airship innovation. Uh, there was a real pushback that, you know, airships had come so far and they fought this uphill battle and they deserved their day and not being condemned by this tragic incident that was ultimately not dubbed anyone's fault, right? Um, so people actually recommended, um, building a replacement of the Akron and naming it in honor of Admiral Moffat who perished, um, in this accident. And they even went so far as to recommend that airship, kind of foregoing airship construction would be a disgrace to those who lost their lives in this incident. So it's kind of easy to think, oh, this would be a clear indication to not proceed with building airships, using airships, but you also have those voices and those reasons saying why they should continue. Well, thank you so much for for giving such a telling story. Um, uh, we love hearing, you know, the ins and outs of these things, and, and it's absolutely tragic, but it is, you know, great to know that good things maybe we, we learn from it um, and that we're able to save lives in the future. Absolutely. Definitely. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy to kind of nerd out and tell stories that people don't always know um, or appreciate. So thank you so much, Gabrielle. It's been truly a joy. This is the exact same reason I started this podcast. So I could just nerd out on these stories and, and you know, be able to tell stories and have fun. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. I will end it with a fun fact. As always, on this day in history, the Arlington Cemetery was established when 200 acres of Confederate General Robert E. Lee's estate in Virginia was seized by the U.S. government in 1864, and it was authorized for its use as the famous cemetery that we know today. You can follow me on Twitter at Brielle to see what else we have going on at FreightWaves Classics. And you can email me at bjakel at FreightWaves.com and tune in in two weeks for our next episode on Freightways TV or listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts.